Welcome. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name's Matt Brusky, and I'm the deputy director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Rebecca Lynch is with us from the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca Lynch. Good to be back in Wisconsin, Matt. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, we'll talk more about that. Uh, also, though, first, Robert Craig, executive director, is with us. Robert. Good day, everyone. So, yeah, it is good to be back. I've been gone for two weeks from the show uh, in Europe. It's actually, I was, Rebecca, that you mentioned this, I was mentioning to my wife, this is the longest period away uh, I've taken from work since our honeymoon. (laughs) We were basically uh, gone for almost a month. But uh, it was great. Um, it It was a typical trip where it had some just catastrophically, bizarrely bad moments, but also mostly just amazing moments. Um, went to, was supposed to go to Paris. Uh, didn't quite make that because of a snafu that I'm not going to get into on the show, but uh, ended up uh, going to the Netherlands, Amsterdam, uh, Berlin, and Prague with my family, and it was amazing. Um, but what I actually want to talk about is it was also amazing to be an American traveling in Europe where Donald Trump is just wildly unpopular. Um, And just the news that was happening, what little bit of news we were tracking, um, both what happened in the uh, Middle East uh, uh, with with Iran in terms of Trump, uh, trumping up that situation, zero, zero credibility um, that America has in our word over there, but also Trump announcing his his candidacy for president, totally covered, like every news station covered it live. It was amazing. And now I was in Paris at that time. But um, so what I want to talk to the panel about is that sort of here we go, right? Like 2020 is on uh, Trump, Trump's announcement um, and get people's just sort of reaction. Also, while I was gone, you know, um, just the the situation that he's he's destabilizing in the Middle East again with Iran. Uh, this is uh, it's it that's that's sort of what I take back from coming uh, coming from Europe, um, and want to get the panel's uh, reaction to just the announcement. We're we're you know really on here presidential in Wisconsin, of course is going to be ground zero for uh, Trump's reelection. Uh, Rebecca, your your thoughts on this week the announcement and and we're really into it now. Yeah, I'm really concerned about what you said about Iran. I know that's not the question. The question's about the announcement, but I'm glad you brought it up because it really is um, frightening what is happening right now uh, with, you know, the Trump administration seemingly, you know, trying to drum up justification to go to war with Iran. And as many listeners will know, you know, we they they can do that without congressional approval because of legislation passed during 9-11. That has not been rescinded. So that freaks me out. As for the announcement, I mean, I it's funny that it was so widely covered in, in Europe because I feel like it is such a non-story here. I mean, he's been running since he was elected. He's been doing, you know, campaign-style rallies the entire term of his presidency. So uh, I guess I, I didn't really register. Like, I knew it was happening. I saw that people waited online for quite some time to get in. But other than that, I, didn't really notice. Uh, well, I connected them deliberately because they were connecting them over there. And I think like they really, well, first of all, context, Trump's approval rating in Europe and just about every country 
is disapproval rating 70, 80, in some cases close to 90%. Poland, it's at 58, uh, is, the, is the worst. So like they view him in a context of very, very scary, like you were saying, right? And that though that, that happened, and then the next week they see he's announcing his campaign and they covered it like live, um, but they did it in a wow. just an incredibly skeptical way, right? Like this was not like some sort of American even-handed uh, discussion. It was kind of like, you know, here it goes, right? Like, I'm, are we going to be stuck with this guy? And it was also the same week that he was talking about his supporters demanding he might uh, get a third term, right? Like, <laughs> I- I'm sorry, but like, the, all that fascist stuff is still incredibly fresh over there in a way that apparently we're asleep at the switch here in America. Okay, so my position is is that Trump is a proto-fascist, so if you're a politifact, you can politifact Matt on whether... I'm saying what the <laughs> European, the general sentiment, okay. like uh, people that would talk to us, like it was a litmus test, like, hey, do you support Trump? Like this person wasn't prepared to talk to you if you did because... They see this as game on around this is very serious, and they're disturbed and worried about our politics. So in political science, proto-fascists have all of the elements of fascism without the full-out fascism yet. But, of course, that's where it potentially leads. So, of course, probably following FDR's welcoming of the uh, disdain of the, of, the, of the moneyed classes for him during the New Deal, probably Trump welcomes a disdain of Europeans because he's certainly done nothing to curry favor in Europe other than maybe with the Boris Johnson wing uh, of the Brexiteers who may become the new prime minister of Great Britain. Uh, but there are two different elements here. First, on the announcement, right? Um, I was watching MSNBC and CNN at, the, uh, at 8 o'clock hour at the, uh, during the announcement evening, uh, and Fox, and switching back and forth. And CNN and MSNBC did not cover the announcement. Fox treated it like the Super Bowl, all on the Hannity Show live. And after after the proto-fascistic presentation by Trump, which was shocking, we won't even get into that, and we don't have time to get into that, uh, it goes back to Hannity, who says... You just witnessed a great historic event, and people waited four days to get in, and it was worth it. And then carried on about how we had saved the country and that we needed to reelect the president. It went all flying flags and all patriotic looking. It was really disturbing kind of stuff. Okay. Then on Iran, they've kind of stepped in it, maybe. It's an open question. There are two interpretations here. There's no doubt that the Trump administration caused this by pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. You'll note that he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, which was a quite a good nuclear deal, and then went in with North Korea with no deal because the Iran deal was done by Obama and Obama didn't have a deal with, with Kim in North Korea. It's that simple. Uh, but then he put people in charge of Iranian policy, Mr. Bolton, uh, Mr. Pompeo, who actually are the war hawks, the ki- and Bolton's one of the people who got us into the Iraq war. So remember Trump saying he was against the Iraq war. Ha, huh, let's therefore elect, uh, bring Bolton in. So the charitable explanation is that they're trying to uh, scare Iran with this saber rattling and, and, and the sanctions, which are really devastating Iran. And, they're, and effectively, they're forcing Europe to have sanctions as well because they need to trade to the United States uh, in order to back Iran down and Iran will capitulate. Okay, But that's not what they're doing. So if they thought that it would go to capitulate, uh, then they're not. Right. So they shot down a drone. Um, 
Uh, it looks like they, they likely did have something to do. They are acting out Iran, but their hardliners have been empowered or in charge. They're hard hardliners, just like our hard hardliners are. The second question is, do they actually want a war? I would say this comes down to whether Trump thinks it's good politics. We know that holding Bolton uh, at this is like having this attack pit bull on a chain and just laying the chain looser and looser. Will he release the chain and they'll have their war? Uh, the only question is whether Trump thinks that's in his political interest or not. I do think this is all, and, and we've been having this conversation uh, on a, the Democratic presidential primary. And so <clears throat> all of this is within that broader context, right? And saying that the 2020 election is definitely on. So, Rebecca, I want to give you a, a chance to respond a little bit to some of the comments. No, I mean, I'm just terrified. <laughs> um, I'm terrified. I mean, I do think that uh, Robert touched on something really interesting, which was the coverage uh, on Fox and what I imagine it would have been on like right wing radio around the announcement of Trump running for re-election. I mean, it, it certainly seems like there was some kind of like deliberate uh, coordinated effort to to. I mean, what Robert is calling like proto-fascist coverage, but like to show this like huge, like popular support um, in like exaggerated terms. Um, and and this obviously goes back to the campaign and goes back to even like the inauguration where, you know, no one showed up and they were like, it was the biggest crowds that anyone's ever had. Right. Like there's this like constant trope that this, there's like this huge amount of support that isn't there. So I think partly, you know, folks looked at it as like overcompensating for the loss of the popular vote. Um, but and, I think there's also, um, as Robert kind of alludes to, like there's a, there's a formula here for like proto-fascist governments and like how they, how they demonstrate their support. So that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. I imagine that like I could probably read some, interesting stuff about that but i i did see the coverage like from afar and be like huh like they're really making a big deal out of this thing and then i just kind of kept it moving so i have to go back and look look more into that so to rebecca's point uh trump appeared on the hattie show last night as a immediate follow-up to the announcement and said it was the biggest crowd anyone had ever had that it's unprecedented so to your point well <laughs> You know, anyways, we're going to wrap this up, this segment. But, like, it, at least for me, being over in Europe and at this time, right, his announcement and the fact that, like, we are the battleground Wisconsin. We are about politics. And Trump is the defining politics. And um, there's a lot at stake going into 2020. And, and that includes our own state. And we're going to get back to our own state after this uh, little break and talk a little bit about the state budget and a number of other issues going on here. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. And we're going to talk about Wisconsin. So, uh, this is where I'm going to step aside since I have not been following much that's been going on. But obviously, uh, I am aware that the state budget uh, continues to be an issue. And uh, just one of the things that we want to briefly talk about and remind our listeners is upcoming Monday, this next Monday, June 24th, is our Badger Care Day of Action uh, to keep pressure on for accepting the Badger Care Medicaid money. 
Um, Robert and Rebecca, I've been gone. Uh, what's the state of this? I assume it continues to uh, uh, be one of the top polarizing issues. Well, we had a great deep dive with Senator Larson last week when you were trotting about Europe, Matt, <laughs> and, and that it's in a good way. And so they have deliberately putting Tony Evers in an impossible situation. Uh, Voss is, and Voss is really driving this whole thing. And if he vetoes this budget then it leads to what Senator Larson called the Walker zombie budget gets implemented. And Voss has accentuated that by saying that if he vetoes it, they'll go home till October. Uh, And so it'll be on him. And so they'll be, and so Weavers will be responsible for a budget far worse than the Republican budget. Or he can sign their budget and their budget studiously attempts to not give Tony Evers anything that was a top priority for Tony Evers and to needlessly do damage uh, to the UW system and to health care by turning down the, the Medicaid expansion money to expand Badger Care, among other things. Medical marijuana, which is popular, not there because it was a Tony Evers initiative, and basically to capitulate and to probably damage his own political standing, his political career, and basically say that Voss is governor, right? which is what this amounts to. So they're trying to create this impossible situation. If they want him to sign it, they would have given him some of his initiatives or would have negotiated some common ground that are interested in that. And so that is the setup. But to do that and to keep backlashes from various interests they care about or general interests that can put damage them in elections, they did do a pretty big spending budget for them. So they spent a lot of money to assuage the hospitals, for example. They put more education than people thought they would, though not as much as Governor Evers. They put more into Medicaid other than Medicaid expansion, batch care expansion, for example. Uh, and so and there are a number of other ways. And so the problem is they're getting some thunder from the right. We're not seeing the alleged moderates rebel because the alleged moderates really aren't, right? Uh, your line of Rippins, uh, uh, Luther Olson, uh, but you have already uh, McIver Institute came out a couple weeks ago saying it was not a conservative budget and attacking how much spending it had in it, how much taxing and spending it had in it, and now we have four senators that might defect. One already has Steve Nosk. It's not a conservative budget, and so their own Freedom Caucus might sink Voss's plans in the Senate. There's such a big gerrymandered majority in the assembly it doesn't matter and so we're going to have the only interesting thing next week we have the assembly action tuesday it's the set action thursday and the most likely the two one scenario it's not going to be defeated because it's an awful budget it's going to be defeated potentially because it's not awful enough budget but they will use every bit of republican leverage to try to prevent themselves from losing two more they can only lose two more and there are three more they could lose so rebecca your thoughts on this in terms of what Evers ought to be doing? I'm I'm just sitting here listening and find it so interesting. I mean, like the point that Robert brought up about the Freedom Caucus in the 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 large uh, Republican majority that's you know created by gerrymandering and not by democracy is like so interesting. And you know, in particular, you know, I, I see that they're like balking at how much money is being spent on transportation. Uh, in the in the Evers plan for the budget. And I, I just find this really interesting because there's this huge tension between that wing of the Republican Party and what the folks of the state of Wisconsin want. And that wing of the Republican Party has been able to like really pull, uh, you know, our budgets like to the right, pull our budgets to be like smaller government, 
less spending on things that we need. So we are losing, you know, we're losing teachers because we are not funding our education or our roads are crumbling, like all of these things that, you know, the people of Wisconsin ousted our incumbent governor, which is like a really big deal because they want to see a change. And so Tony Evers is trying to implement that change and he's facing opposition. And I just find it really interesting to think about how he's not just facing opposition from the Republicans as a whole, but that even within that caucus, you've got this smaller group of folks who are like really um, concerned. And what I think is so entertaining about that is that the Republic, like Voss has a problem because like the Republicans as a whole also need to to stop losing elections in Wisconsin, right? And so they're looking at this and they're looking at things that people want. And it's why right before the governor's election, they started running these ads that Scott Walker supported protecting people with um, pre-existing conditions and started trying to move legislatively and just that as if that were possible. And um, I think this puts them in like a really, a really bad spot. And I, you know, obviously hope that we have a budget, but if things kind of unfold the way Robert laid out, I think there's a lot that these folks will be vulnerable on um, that we can we can bring to the voters and make sure they know exactly what's happening here and why they're not getting new roads and why we're not getting the funding we need for education and so on and so forth. So the percentage, I totally agree, Rebecca. The problem Evers has is, unlike them, he cares about government. He doesn't want to damage local governments or school districts, et cetera, and, and cares about blowing things up. And so I'm sure he feels moral qualms about what to do but he needs to understand that we'll never win if he capitulates entirely to this. But there are options. He could most likely veto parts of the budget, not all the budget. Uh, he has a bigger problem with lo anything involving local government or school districts. Because if, if Voss follows down his threat, which he has the power to do, not to come back till October, then you are put, creating an impossible budget situation and massive budget cuts for local school districts. They have to constitutionally do their budget in the fall. So okay. the takeaway here is that he has to make a choice around education and whether it's worth the risk. He could certainly veto the Medicaid budget, just for example, and maybe other parts. He clearly is going to veto the registration fees as opposed to gas taxes. He's already come out against the idea that no out-of-state tourists would pay for our roads, only, only Wisconsin folks, and doing it in a regressive way because registration fees – uh, are equal for everyone, including the lowest income folks who don't have good access to mass transit. So he'll veto that. But with Medicaid, here's the thing. The people will be mad as the hospitals because they're getting, a, they're getting a bunch of money from the Republicans and they played this double game all along where they tried to get the private option. Truth is, they deserve it, number one, because they literally ha are willing to throw low-income Wisconsinites who, who are working and don't have good access to health care under the bus for their own money. Uh, but second, they don't have any kind of immediate pressing issue uh, like, the, that, that, like the local school districts or local governments. But he's going to have to make a lot of tough choices, but he should not just sign this whole budget. He should veto at least the Medicaid budget. And then you make the whole debate about Medicaid expansion even more specific and, 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 and uh, focused for the public. So I tend to think he is first and foremost a civil servant and I think he's going to have a hard time, as Robert pointed out. The education thing, I think, is his biggest issue. Uh, there's real additional dollars uh, for school districts, and, and the continued Walker budget is, is crippling. And I think that um, just knowing how he resp re responded to the DPI budget, when he, uh, with the education budget when the Republicans increased it, 
he was very supportive of it actually when it first came out and called it a decent budget. So I think those are his sort of his core instincts. And on public education, it's a big deal, and the Walker budget and continuing that for another two years would would really be devastating. I, you know, there'll be bad enough stuff that will happen with uh, accepting the Republican budget. However, personally. I just think this is such a politically polarized time. He ran on these issues, as Rebecca pointed out earlier, and won an, an election on these issues. And then, you know, really, um, I think he needs to hearken back to the days where he basically immediately calls the 2020 election on and says, I'm going to veto this budget. This budget is devastating. There's nothing I can do about it um, that can make it decent enough for me. And with the division on the Republican side, they're incredibly vulnerable right now in terms of him being able to basically be like, the problem's over there. Those jokers can't even agree on their bad budget. Um, you need to send me a different legislature in 2020. I don't care about the maps. He can talk about the maps, talk about gerrymandering, but say it's going to require courageous voters uh, to come out and throw these guys out, that they're just bad for the state, um, and make this a, a real litmus test on the people's budget and actually... Just call the election on, and uh, this is partially why Trump announced his election. Uh, it, we're in the political season, and this thing has been incredibly political. Um, there's been virtually, as Robert and you both talked about, no real sort of agreement on any of the fundamental things Tony ran on, and that's what if we had a functioning democracy, you know, that's what would be happening. There would be some give and take in those areas. I got one amendment to what I said because the public thinks Evers is the one who wants to work together, and they're right. He should also, when he vetoes these things, veto some stuff they really want, okay, as bargaining chips. Immediately with the vetoes, offer to have a conference committee with himself and the Senate and the Assembly leadership immediately to work out their differences and have a budget immediately, and basically meet. Like, literally, if they won't meet and they go home, then have the meeting without them and say, I'm here to negotiate, they won't. Rebecca, you got the last minute. <laughs> My my last minute uh, is is somewhat related, which is that I guess Martha Lanning, our like outgoing Democratic Party chair, went to I don't know if listeners know the Third Way. It's like this like centrist, like pro centrist, pro moderate like interest. It's running ads against Bernie, Rebecca. Yeah, apparently spoke at an event they had yesterday for reasons that surpass understanding, since she's no longer our party chair, and she said that. Basically, the Tony Evers won by appealing to moderates, and that's how we're going to win in 2020. So, I, you know, I think that's not the story of why Tony won. Tony won by appealing to, like, a broad base of people who want, you know, as he keeps saying, to, like, fix the damn roads, clean the damn water. Um, and he won all over the place, including in Milwaukee. But, you know, I think Tony is – I think today there are these, like, dueling press conferences where Tony's having a press conference and Robin Voss is having a press conference. And I think this is just going to continue to heat up. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see to see what happens because the, the sentiment when you poll people is very much on the side of, of Governor Evers and his budget. So we'll see. We'll talk a little more after this break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin for Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Before we uh, go on back to uh, talking about all things presidential, um, particularly within the Democratic primary, 
we do want to wrap up the budget talk by reminding everybody about our day of action next Monday, June 24th. Um, we have activities all over in a number of areas around the state, but this is a um, really important day, statewide day of action around expanding Badger Care and, and really trying to put pressure on these Republicans um, and trying to create uh, the political environment where uh, we can actually potentially win this. But there will be activities both in Madison, at the Capitol, we'll be going to lobby legislators. Um, so we're encouraging people to, if you can make it to the Capitol on Monday, to come and go talk to your state legislators. Um, also, we'll have activities in Milwaukee, in Eau Claire, in Green Bay, Brown Deer, Wausau, Manaqua, La Crosse, and Ladysmith. All of this stuff is up on our website, um, and we'll have the stuff on our web page with the details here at the podcast. Um, so please get involved, and if your only involvement is you yourself contacting your legislator, calling their office, uh, that's huge. Um, but really encourage you to try to talk to your neighbors, uh, get involved either in some of our specific activities or at least be talking about Badger Care to other folks on Monday. Let's, uh, let's, have, a, let's have a big public uh, display of action around there. So, Oh, and one more thing. Uh, for those of you who are really into Medicare for All, which is most progressives, and you live in the Milwaukee area, I'm going to be speaking uh, to Grassroots North Shore at a big event from 3 to 5 p.m. this Sunday, uh, June 23rd, at the Brown Deer Methodist Church, 5736 West Brown Deer Road, where I will explain everything you need to know about the big Medicare for All bills, the Medicare for America bill, which is the universal but public option-oriented alternative, and take questions from the audience. And there are a lot of people who have questions about what is feasible, what we, what we do if we win the presidential election in 2021, and I will be there to present and to take all questions about it. We need to move on to presidential. Robert, you, you wanted to add some stuff. Just one quick thing on the budget. I want to say more slowly what I said quickly in the last segment. So here's the roadmap for Tony Evers. He should veto the Medicaid budget, make a decision whether he can veto the school budget without damaging school districts too much, and that's an internal decision, uh, and veto, he could veto things like car registration, veto some things that the Republicans care about. I would veto the, the, the middle-class tax cut. Uh, and here's what I would say then when you make these vetoes. You then, because Robin Voss is going to go home and tell everyone now come back till October, immediately ask in the veto message that we're going to meet and we're going to have a conference committee between the governor and the legislature and work out these issues, and I will sign them as soon as we do. And when they simply go home, if they do that, then go, go do it without them and say have with empty chairs and literally just stay around the Capitol all summer saying, I'm here to work to fix the budget. They won't because they won't even work with me. And the, what you say about the middle class tax cut is people shouldn't get tax cut in, until we give working people affordable health care. And they're the ones stopping you from having a tax cut because I had a bigger tax cut than, than they did in their budget. There you go, Robert's pro-tax cut pitch. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I know. So I'm talking, I was trying to say what Tony would say. Robert would not do the tax cut except for a big income tax credit for working All folks. right, all right. We hear you. Let's talk presidential, all right? Because, look, we started off with Trump, right? Like, Wisconsin is going to be central. And so we're going to continue our conversation. Um, 
wanted to the the one little bit I was sort of tracking um, while I was gone is there does appear to be a lot of talk, and I don't know. I'll ask our favorite pollsters here, uh, Rebecca and Robert, as to that Elizabeth Warren seems to be gaining traction, and and it seems to be at the expense of Bernie. Rebecca, your thoughts on uh, just the horse race aspect of the uh, Democratic side? Well, I, I'm very excited that Senator Warren is doing so well. Uh, certainly, I'm not thrilled that it is seemingly at the expense of Bernie. I don't know if that, that is necessarily true, but I, I agree that that is like a concern of what it might look like. Um, but I'm thrilled she's doing well. I mean, both Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are like some of the, are two of the most clear and clear eyed defenders of, you know, the way in which we want to see the world and our platform, you know, of course, um, Senator Sanders is a democratic socialist. Senator Warren is not. Um, but, you know, in many ways, there's a lot of overlap and similarity and they're super progressive. So I see like success of either or, or both candidate to be like a huge win for us and and, you know, our our vision for the world. So I'm really psyched about that. She's been rising in the polls. Obviously, we don't want to make too much of polling ever, certainly not this early out. But, you know, I think it is possibly a demonstration of the fact that the more folks see and see of Liz Warren, hear of Liz Warren, the more people are coming to to see her as a, a viable and and um, and good candidate that they would want to get behind. And I, I think that that's like kind of thrilling. There are so many folks who like prior to this election after 2016 said a woman could never be viable. People aren't going to vote for a woman. And there were lots of reasons why people say that folks wouldn't support Liz Warren. And they'll still say those things, right? But that not only is she a woman, but she's too old or she's not attractive enough or whatever it is that people are going to say about her. And like these polls fly in the face of that. Like people are like flocking to Liz Warren. And I think it's because not only of her policies and her like her uh, lane that she's kind of carved out for herself as she has a plan, um, but also she's running really smart politics. Um, she's calling voters directly. Um, you know, she's going viral all over the place, talking to people on like airport shuttles and, you know, just really explaining where she's at. So I'm really excited about that. I would say that to the extent that there might be a little bit of what you mentioned, Matt, of it coming coming at the expense of Bernie, certainly these are the two candidates that are competing for the votes of progressives. But what I what I see is thrilling is that they are growing the map and like bringing more people into that progressive tent. The other candidate who I think it probably comes at the expense of is Biden. And Biden has had a really rough couple weeks. And so, um, you know, we'll see we'll see how that trend continues when the first debates happen next week. But, you know, I think I see I see Biden losing momentum and Liz Warren gaining momentum. And Bernie, of course, is being a very strong candidate and one of the front runners. Well, that, you, you, that, that is the question I want to continue to dive in and go, go to Robert on, is this question of, like, are, can we, how much can be eaten into Biden, and can both Bernie and Elizabeth continue to grow beyond just the progressive base and not sort of this um, zero-sum game between progressive voters? Um, and I don't know. It is an open question. I, Robert, your thoughts on whether what, what, what you think is going on here. I saw one of the better polling analyses I've seen 
And and this is just where we are. This doesn't mean that we're early in the race, right? Uh, on the Chris, Cu- Chris Cuomo show last night, went across the poll of polls. It was a, he had a pollster on with him. I, I don't. I'm blanking on which pollster, but it, it was very. It was not the usual pollsters. It was a good pollster, and th- it showed over three months that if you if you divide the Democratic electorate into the moderate wing, which is about half, and the liberal wing that Elizabeth's growth is all in the liberal wing, not in the moderate wing at all, and that Bernie's decline is all in the liberal wing as well. So it certainly looks like what's happening is is that some of the liberal wing is switching from Bernie to Elizabeth. It found no Elizabeth growth in the moderate wing. It found Bernie to have lost a little in the moderate wing, but still doing much better than Elizabeth in the moderate wing. It did show this, and this is what's going to be interesting to see now with the really bad week Biden had, with Biden saying yesterday that there's not a racist bone in his body, which, of course, uh, this is over him uh, bragging about being friends with segregationist setters like Strom Thurmond and working with them. The problem is he doesn't even know that uh, in, in, in modern understanding of race, all whites have uh, racist bones in their body by being grown growing up in a white supremacist society. So he doesn't even know that. So this is going to be used. That's a really you know he has a he has a, a propensity for lines that get him in trouble. The I have no racist bone in my body line is like a defensive line that is embarrassing. So maybe that'll cost him the liberal votes. But the scary thing about the poll of polls analysis over three months is twenty five percent of liberals are still supporting Biden. Well, that's uh, very interesting because like. That's still a large chunk of voters that are available uh, to 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 both ought to be essentially available to both Bernie or Elizabeth. Um, so this is actually a really sort of critical critical question because as progressives, I think we've sort of determined that these are the top two, and the polling seems to reflect that. Do want to point out to our listeners uh, before we go to break that we are going to bring back, now that I'm back, uh, we're going to continue our conversations uh, where we dive into one of the Democratic presidential candidates next week. Um, And we're going to carry on this discussion further uh, uh, because we're going to talk about Bernie Sanders. Uh, We've already talked about Elizabeth Warren, but um, we think it's a good point to dive into Bernie and do a deeper analysis on that. But uh, clearly the horse race does matter because we're about to, what, head into the debates um, and we can talk more about this after the break, but um, someone uh, update me on what the latest is. When, when are the debates again? I don't know. What, Rebecca? Oh, Liz Warren totally got screwed. <laughs> no, so they're, um, the debates are the 26th and the 27th. There we go. And uh, Senator Warren is on the 26th with like uh, the bulk of the minor candidates. And then on the 27th is like, all, most of the heavy hitter candidates that we want to see. I mean, I think Beto is also on the 26th. He is. I, think, I think Beto, Booker, and Warren are on the 26th, yes. and the rest are nobodies. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But I think Biden's side, the, the Biden table also gets some of the uh, more more wackadoodle nobodies on, the, on theirs. Uh, there's some analysis, uh, Rebecca, that Elizabeth will, if she, if she can dominate... Uh, the first debate do better and stand out more, and that Biden and 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 Bernie will get bogged down with each other. So there's some analysis that it might be better for Elizabeth, uh, but it depends yeah. whether she yeah. completely do- can be seen <laughs> as dominating that debate. With that, we'll, we'll we'll talk a little more presidential politics in our last segment. Uh, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action Friends at Citizen Action.
Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking presidential. Rebecca, you were in the middle of some thoughts here on the debate. Uh, I want to give you a chance for further thoughts, discussion about the upcoming debates now that we've established June 26th, 27th, since I had completely forgotten. Well, I'm very upset that Mike Gravel did not qualify for the debate. <laughs> I gave Mike Gravel a dollar. I'm part of the Gravelanche. I think he got screwed. But um, no, I mean, it, it'll be interesting. But I think um, to a point that Joe Biden made, I think a couple of weeks ago, this is not really a debate, right? Like right. there's too many people on the stage. We're not going to be able to hear too much from folks. But it is a good opportunity to see how they like perform. Um you know, side by side with each other for the first time in, in the horse race. Um, I also like I wanted to say something else, though, uh, that I forgot in the last segment, which is both Bernie and Liz Warren, um, both Senator Sanders and Warren are running um, really smart campaigns. And I kind of mentioned that with Senator Warren, but like both of them are. And Senator Sanders is like, as we've talked about, I think in the past, hired like a crack team, like a phenomenal team of folks. They've got like some of the best organizers on the ground um, in Iowa, hiring like a bunch of folks out of Iowa CCI, which is a People's Action affiliate and like sister organization of Citizen Action Wisconsin. Um, so they've got like real movement organizers running that campaign. And it's it's fascinating to see. In addition to that, both of these candidates yesterday endorsed uh, our candidate for uh, district attorney out in Queens. So just like super quick, because it's not really Wisconsin relevant, but it's really, I think it's interesting in terms of the presidential. We have um, a public defender, a queer Latina, running to be the next district attorney in Queens in New York City. First time we're having a new district attorney in like 40 years. And she's running to decarcerate, to uh, legalize sex work, to end cash bail, um, and do like a whole host of reforms. And yesterday, both Liz Warren and Bernie Sanders endorsed her for DA in this like very competitive race that like will be very hard to win. If she wins, it would be a huge upset. So they're taking a political risk doing that, um, but they're very clearly backing this like very progressive candidate and they're both doing it. So I think that's like a really interesting like window into how they're running their campaigns this early out from November 2020. Just a couple quick thoughts on the debate, then I have some thoughts about another can one of the major candidates. But first of all, it may benefit Elizabeth that, you know, there's really been a kind of a little war going on between Bernie and Biden. And Bernie has been nipping at Biden in a way that's upsetting Biden. So they may they they so it might be good for Elizabeth that Bernie and takes on the interaction. Biden will probably try to completely come up with some one-liners to slam Bernie and how Bernie responds will be interesting given that Bernie is a very positive candidate and doesn't like this kind of back and forth except on issues themselves, which is obviously the way he'll focus it, taking all the money from Wall Street, for example. Uh, so I think that that's interesting. The other thing is this may not move the polls as much as we think because really only the active base is going to watch a debate this early. And so there's still a lot of general election voters, that's the volatility in the primary, who are barely paying attention and are probably just saying Biden to pollsters because he's the only guy they've heard of other than Sanders. Um, they're, they're probably the only two that a lot of these voters have even heard of, quite frankly. And so I know that's strange for our listeners because our listeners to Battleground Wisconsin are the tuned-in listeners. Uh, but, there's, but there's that as well. All right. So before we end the show, we there's a, another issue we want to talk about. We're, we've already talked about Beto O'Rourke. But um, there was a story that broke 
um, around Beto. And I know, Robert, you wanted to briefly mention something. And then, Rebecca, I want to get your uh, reaction uh, to Robert. Robert, on Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, it's not that new a story. It's just that I've, you know, it hasn't been widely reported outside of, you know, it, uh, where I read it. The current issue of American Prospect has a fantastic deep dive on Beto by a, a, a Texas journalist named Christopher Hooks, who's a very good journalist, about his whole career. It's called Beto versus the Barrio. And you would think that it's a debunking of him, given that the way he um, came to power, quite frankly, he was you know, a very smart kid who went to Ivy League schools and came back to El Paso, was that he married the daughter of the richest developer in the area, who's a guy who has a, a you know a, a very mixed reputation, and then did was on the common county his city council of El Paso part of a big development deal that was that was being pushed by his father-in-law, uh, that would have really that 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 displaced a lot of low-income folks, right, or, or would have. It actually didn't happen. Um, and so, and then th those folks, including his father-in-law, underwrote his congressional campaign where he upset. An incumbent who was a pretty bad incumbent who had a lot of bad like drug war policies, etc. But what's interesting about it is because I've been interested in Beto to the extent that he's a, obviously a phenomenal political talent. And in addition, his his policy platform is remarkably good. He's the third most detailed person out there after Elizabeth and Bernie, and he has a lot of very good plans. What's interesting about this article is, is it does raise the question that this is a guy who did what he needed to do to get into power, so he didn't have the same pathway Elizabeth and Bernie had, which is a lot more like a progressive activist pathway, but that there are a number of examples of him taking extremely strong progressive positions in his career, and it's quite possible that this guy intends to use his power for a lot of good progressive ends. And so that makes him kind of an LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson famously in the Robert Caro novels uh, was willing to do anything to get into power, but then when he had it, did things like the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare and Medicaid, et cetera. So he's not doesn't have the purity or the he's one of us, Bernie Elizabeth has, but he's way more interesting but also problematic and paradoxical than, say, a, a, a Joe Biden, to me. So I think the article, even though you could consider it a debunking article, it's in the current American prospect, is actually fascinating if he ends up being some kind of fallback or alternative to a traditional kind of corporate Democrat. Yeah, I, that's interesting. Do you think that that's going to happen, Robert, um, that he would be that fallback? I mean, before you answer, you know, there was another article that mentioned Beto this week um, in the New York Times that listeners probably may have read about, you know, who's winning the race for Wall Street money uh, in the presidential. And, you know, he, he was not at the top of the list, um, you know, uh, obviously. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You keep going. No one's. No one's oh, I heard a, I heard a noise. Sorry. Um, you know, he's not at the top of the list. We've got Biden at the top of the list. Kamala is certainly in the mix. Um, Mark Lazary, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, has been throwing fundraisers for uh, Kamala, according to that article. Um, but Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete's at the top of the list. But Beto is in, in there, too, um, trying to make a play for Wall Street money. So I'm kind of like thinking about what you just said, Robert, in the context of that. And I think, you know, it is it, it is. Totally possible, um, I suppose, that someone could be progressive and, you know, use their access to, like, money and power to try to advance progressive policies. I think that, like, there's a difference between, like, there's such, like, there's a huge, and this is why people who support Senator Sanders um, 
are so clear-eyed about it, right? Because Senator Sanders isn't just talking about like, oh, let me advance like a little tax there or like a little subsidy there or, you know, let's do something progressive here or there. He's talking about changing our entire system to be more fair. And someone who is like reliant on like the richest people in this country to like advance some issues, even if they're, even if they're helpful towards like lessening income inequality, they're never going to go after the whole system in the way that someone like Senator Sanders is like, I'm a socialist, a democratic socialist. And like what we have in this country isn't working can do. Yeah. Um, So I don't know. That's my immediate reaction. So Rebecca, and I'm not questioning that at all. It'd be interesting. Maybe our listeners can tell us about this or send us other information. Beto has, doesn't take PAC money, has run against big money, dominating elections, and has been for a strong campaign for him for a long time. So I don't know what the methodology is, because let's face it, people who work for Wall Street firms give money to Bernie, right? It's just not from the major leaders of the firm. It's not in big chunks, right? It's small, you know, there are a lot of people who work for Chase Bank, right, or J.P. Morgan Chase. And as you know, some of the campaign finance methodologies just look at what someone, who someone works for. So I don't know, but maybe it's also that he is playing a game and he's against some kinds of big money, but is also taking some of the big money that actually comes from the leaders of big banks. I don't know, but I'm saying that unlike Biden, he is consciously campaigning against big money and claiming he's independent, and that's very different than Biden. Maybe he, maybe that's not fully true. I don't know, but I, I just want to lay that out there. In, in, but I totally agree. It's not like Elizabeth and Bernie, whose positions and path to uh, to prominence is more like progressive activists that that listen to our show. So we're going to have to wrap this up here. I'll just close on Beto on this just saying I I brought this up when we talked about Beto before. I I don't trust him. I I I I agree with Robert. LBJ would probably be best case scenario, but like I just think his governance or when he was actually in office um reveals a lot about him and I, I think he's very talented clearly and um, but I get concerned when I read the development stuff um, that's work that's very near and dear to my heart here uh, in Milwaukee and just using eco- how you use precious economic development dollars uh, that in tiffing and all of that really says a lot about who you really which side you're on and so like that's disturbing information to me but anyways uh, we got to wrap this one up. And again, next week, uh, any of our listeners, uh, you know, who want to come on and you know talk a little bit about Bernie, uh, reach out to me, Matt.Bresky at CitizenActionWI.org. We got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin podcast. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>